Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. If you recognize that sound, you know it's the noise of candy being unwrapped. And not just any candy, but a hard candy. The kind we often think of as old-fashioned. You know, root beer barrels. Peppermints with those little red and white stripes along the edges. Butterscotch. I still remember the very first candy given to me by my grandfather. It was Werther's Original, and I... It's not just hard candies that we often think of as grandparent candies, of course. There are plenty of other treats that have a reputation as old-fashioned, like Chico Sticks or Clark Bars. You don't often see them in modern vending machines or by the cash register at the 7-Eleven, but they persevere with no signs of fading away completely. They have a resonance that goes beyond flavor and endurance beyond sales numbers. There's nostalgia, but there's also something more than that. For travel writer Doug Mack, one of the old-school candies that forges an emotional connection is the strawberry bonbon. Doug writes a newsletter called Snack Stack, and he recounts this encounter with the strawberry bonbon photo. He writes, They always struck me as a relic not just of the past, but the distant past. A grandparent's wistfulness embodied in sucrose and placed in a wrapper that looked like a strawberry. The graphics plain and boring compared to the more alluring packaging of Pop Rocks and fruit snacks and Snickers. This got Doug and us thinking. Even way back when, these candies felt old-fashioned. When were they ever new? How far do you need to go back to find the dawn of old-timey candy? And, despite their lack of pizzazz, why do they bring us connection and joy. So today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, immerse in a many-flavored lollipop. A tale with layer after unexpected layer, going from sweet to sour to a little bit spicy. I'm Kevin Pang, working my way through this Charleston chew. Stick around. There's a lot of smart ovens out there, and it can be hard to decide which ones are worthy of taking up real estate in your kitchen, especially if you're thinking about getting one for the holidays. Luckily, Breville's Jewel Ovens got you covered. The Jewel Oven has an app which offers step-by-step videos featuring ATK's very own cooking instructor, Christy Morrison. Hey, Christy. Hi, Kevin. You can follow along on the app with easy-to-follow video steps to walk you through holiday classics like ATK sweet potato casserole and simple stuffing. That's right. I had such a blast shooting those. And it's great to know that you're working with a reliable oven because our reviews team chose Breville as a recommended pick. Download the Breville app to find guided recipes so you can nail it the first time, every time. Learn more at Breville.com. That's B-R-E-V-I-L-L-E dot com. I'm a diehard fan of mangoes. I'll eat mangoes on the hottest day of summer and on Christmas Day. And with the holidays fast approaching, I'm chatting with my colleague, Cook's Country test cook Kelly Song, who's going to introduce me to some festive mango recipes. What's up, Kelly? Hey, Kevin. 
So Kelly, a lot of people might think mangoes, those are summer fruits to use in desserts. But you were just telling me that mangoes are actually great to use any time of year for any type of dish, sweet or savory. Yes, that's absolutely correct. You can use mangoes as an appetizer in stuffed zucchini with curried lamb, currants, and mangoes. We have an amazing pork tenderloin recipe that features a super punchy, bright mango chutney. And my favorite is actually from the book Boards by our chef and food stylist, El Simone Scott. She has an amazing recipe for chocolate fondue. And want to guess one of the ingredients she recommends dipping? I'm going to guess it's mangoes? Yep, that's right. Well, Kelly, all these mango recipes are making me hungry. Find your mango inspiration at mango.org. I'm Jacob Goldstein, host of the podcast, What's Your Problem? And over the next few weeks, I'll be talking to the people who are shaping the future of food. A Stanford scientist raised billions of dollars to make meat without animals. The mission of the company is to completely replace animals as a food technology. A kid who grew up at his uncle's pizza shop is helping family restaurants survive in the 21st century. The bottleneck isn't the pizza oven, it's the telephone. It's the telephone. And a guy who helped create the iPhone is trying to eliminate food waste by reinventing the trash can. First and foremost, it has to not smell. And that's a crazy thing to say. You can listen to What's Your Problem wherever. Oh, come on, Jacob. You wouldn't pay an extra dollar for a Stegosaurus burger? I'd pay an extra dollar. (laughs) Does it come with fries? Sure, I'll throw in the fries for free. Travel writer Doug Mack brings us today's story. Earlier this year, during an especially brutal winter, I found solace in a tweet about candy from my childhood. It was early February 2022, and oh my God, it was so cold. I live in Minneapolis, and I just looked up the low temperature for that day. It was three degrees below zero. And that was actually warm compared to the previous month. It had been bitterly cold for so long. I have two young daughters, and they were getting restless stuck inside. They also couldn't have playdates with friends because this was the height of the Omicron wave of the pandemic. Their schools kept closing for quarantines. My wife and I were exhausted and anxious. My doctor put me on antidepressants. Not a great time in my life. But this is a story about joy and about finding it where you can and carving out moments of feeling grounded and carefree. Before the pandemic hit, I was a travel writer. I'd written books about traveling in Europe and the history of the U.S. territories. I delighted in the sense of learning and connection that comes from being in an unfamiliar place and meeting the people there. So when my phone or Facebook kept pinging me about memories and photos I'd taken two years earlier, it filled me with happiness and frustration. One of the alerts reminded me of a trip I'd taken in February 2020 to Minsk, the capital of Belarus. I'd gone there to give a series of talks on travel writing at a book festival as a guest of the U.S. Embassy. The memory alerts showed photos of me eating a slice of layer cake in the snack bar of a historic department store, with chandeliers and friezes depicting farmers posing heroically with their livestock. Or here I was at the ballet with an American diplomat. Or 
here I was posing with a calligrapher from Iran who made me a gorgeous piece of script art that now hangs in my house. The memories those photos conjured weren't just about what happened in Belarus, but what happened next. I came home energized with books and pictures and stories to share with my kids. They were enthralled. We talked about places they wanted to visit and where we should go as a family. And then, just a few weeks later, everything shut down. I had basically stayed in my house since then. It was isolating. In spring 2021, a year into the pandemic, I started Snack Stack as a coping mechanism. It focuses on the backstory of snacks and candy and informal everyday foods like that. The newsletter was a way for me to explore the world and learn about other cultures, even when I was at home. It was also a way to feel a sense of connection by sharing what I learned with other people. Instead of wandering city streets doing the flaneur thing, I was meandering through newspaper archives and Google Maps, exploring both places and eras I knew nothing about. There's that famous line, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. I tried to take that to heart and rekindle my curiosity that way. Research became my avenue for carving out a sense of wonder and delight. It kept me from getting too restless. I found ideas wherever I could, at the grocery store, in books I was reading, stray musings and conversations with friends, and sometimes by complete chance when I was spending too much time on Twitter. Doom scrolling has its benefits. This particular tweet, the one that sent me on this sugary path, had a photo of strawberry bonbons in their red and green plastic wrappers with the caption, Do you guys remember this trash candy? Was there a single person who liked these? Show yourselves. It took me a second to process what I was seeing. It was like, hey, I do remember those things. Why do I remember those things? Do I like them? And then it all came rushing back. The photo opened a portal to the mid-1980s when I was five or six. I remembered seeing those candies in a little bowl by the cash register in family restaurants. I couldn't recall one specific restaurant. Several different ones kind of blurred together. But in my memory, it was the sort of place with wood paneling on the walls and fluorescent lights, and because it was the 1980s, also the inescapable smell of cigarettes drifting in from the smoking section. We didn't eat out much, so just the act of doing so was a treat. Like, what a joy to get out into society, even if I was just having a grilled cheese sandwich. And the strawberry bonbon from the bowl on the way out, man... That was living. While I was staring at Twitter, processing all this, it struck me that while we think of those strawberry candies as old-fashioned now, they were also old-fashioned when I was a kid in the 80s. So when were they ever new? These candies, like, what's their deal? How did they get here? And have they always had the same cultural resonance? As I started doing research that night and over the next few days, I was whisked down all these rabbit holes that just kept branching out. It was fascinating, and sometimes it was weird, and it was just the distraction I needed as I battled the Minnesota cold and the darkness clouding my mind. I started by looking in digital newspaper archives. Right away, I found something from 1981, which is when I was born. 
It was an ad for Christmas gift boxes with different packaged food items. Each option had a kind of meat, usually a sausage of some variety, and some gouda or cheddar or some other kind of cheese. They also always had one jar of fruit preserves and a little bag of strawberry bonbons. The bold-faced headline on the ad said, Say Merry Christmas with a taste of old-time country goodness. So, right off the bat, in 1981, the strawberry bonbons are old. In articles from the 1960s and 1950s, I found strawberry bonbons listed in various descriptions of shops that sold old-fashioned penny candies, or in one case, nostalgic breath candies. There was a story from 1965 about a living history tourist site in Cassville, Wisconsin. It offered visitors a taste of 19th century life. You can probably picture exactly what that meant. There was a blacksmith, stables, a barrel maker, and an old-fashioned candy store. It sold lollipops, candy canes, and fruit drops, which is to say hard candies formed in a mold with a fruit flavor. So basically, during the 1960s, these kinds of candies had an association with not just an earlier decade, but an earlier century. Strawberry bonbons were grandma candy even when my grandmas were kids. It was nostalgia as a moving target, an association with retro Americana from some hazy period in the past that seemed impossible to pin down. But that confusion only made me want to do more research. Eventually, I had dozens of internet browser tabs open, including articles from newspapers.com, the Library of Congress, the Internet Archive, various academic databases, Google Books, and just regular Google. It was kind of a scattershot approach to research, but just having this task helped ground me. One of the stories I found was from a couple of years ago, from Mel Magazine. It was by a writer named Ian Lecklitner. He had also been on a quest for strawberry bonbons. He wrote that candy culture as we know it began forming in the 1920s and 30s. He called this period the Wild West of candy creation. I called up candy historian Beth Kimmerly for more details. She's written several books about candy, including Candy, the Sweet History, and Sweet Times, 100 Years of Making Confections Better. The story of candy in this era, she says, begins with prohibition. So people can't get their, like, sweet fix from alcoholic beverages anymore, so you have the rise of soft drinks and candy, ice cream parlors, candy store. You know, so the 1920s are also sort of the tail end of jazz and champagne and, you know, gin drinks and that whole flapper, Gatsby, post-World War One era. Beth says that many of the candies from this era stuck around, becoming some of the oldest brand-name treats still sold today. Their names are throwbacks to that cultural moment from a century ago. So during the 1920s, you have a lot of candies that are reflecting jazz age themes, whether it's dances, Charleston Chew. You have all sorts of different, like, music start to be reflected in candy. And you have a lot of new candy because times were good, people were feeling it. There was also the O. Henry Bar, which debuted in 1920, Baby Ruth in 1921, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups in 1928. It was a swinging time. In the 1930s, of course, all of that shifted. 
Candy took on a different resonance. Candy becomes a little bit more austere with the times. And you have a lot of candy that's marketed as like a meal replacement. We think about, you know, Kind Bar or, you know, some of these sports nutritional bars like that. Those are throwbacks from the 30s when candy starts getting marketed as like, hey, guys, it has protein, it has sugar. You can't afford a meal. This can be your jam. There was a popular candy bar called Chicken Dinner, which was made with nuts and chocolate and zero chicken. But the idea was, here's something that can really tide you over for a low price. There was also another one called the Denver Sandwich, which had layers of wafers, ground nuts, and chocolate. It was advertised as the Candy Lunch. Oh, and in 1932, the candy bar Payday was invented. Not a meal replacement necessarily, but as a joke. You might not have money in the bank, but you had a payday. While these new candy bars were gaining fans, the older hard candies were still around too. Often they were homemade, but sometimes they were store-bought, a little bit of luxury in a time when people desperately needed it. Unlike the candy bars, these were a treat, nothing more. And because they were small and relatively cheap, they were something to put out and share, often in a glass dish. We've all read a lot about the depression. Like, if you could afford to get a little bag of candy, you're going to put it out. Candy in a dish might not have been the focal point of the room or the main purpose for a gathering, but it lightened the mood. Its metaphorical sweetness may have been even more important than the literal kind. And knowing all that helped shift my understanding of strawberry bonbons. It highlighted the circumstances surrounding the various times I'd had them. Their flavor came in large part from the fact that somebody else had shared them. They represented an act of companionship and a sense of reassurance, no matter what else was going on in everyday life or the broader world. Beth Kimberly also mentioned something I hadn't really thought about. In addition to these day-to-day moments, there's a connection between candy and special occasions like Valentine's Day, Halloween, Christmas, or birthdays. It's got this association of, like, happy times for people. And so you have these things, these, like, psychological things at play that make it comforting, familiar, a happy place. But, okay, As fascinating as all that was, and as much as I enjoyed all these rabbit holes of research, I still hadn't found my answer. When exactly were strawberry bonbons new? What was the historic context for their origins? I pushed myself back on track, trying to return to these central questions, trying to zero in on a date. There were still some digressions, but they helped me fill in some of the details of the origin story. Not just when they began, but why and how. I found one story from 1833 about how the French were doing all this amazing new stuff with sugar and candy. It talked about this one particular street in Paris that for several days around the New Year, quote, is completely blocked up by carts and wagons laden with sweetmeats for the provinces. These are of every form and description which the most singular fancy could imagine. Bunches of carrots, green peas, boots and shoes, lobsters and crabs, hats, books, musical instruments, gridirons, frying pans and saucepans, all made of sugar and colored to imitate reality, all made with a hollow within to hold the bonbons. French candy makers were clearly a big deal in this era. 
When I found a mention of fruit drops in a newspaper ad for a candy shop in Bloomington, Illinois in 1861, it was listed under the bold-faced heading, French Confectionery. I asked Beth Kimmerly if that meant that the French created hard candy as we know it, including strawberry bonbons. And she said, well... Careful who you say that to, by the way. <laughs> Don't tell the Italians that France did it first. But so in Europe, you have this longstanding tradition around two things. One, using sugar as a preservative to preserve foods. So... That strawberry bonbon is a descendant of preserves and jams and preserving fruit. Beth told me that before sugar was a sweetener used to make candy and things like that, it was a preservative. This started in India and the surrounding region centuries ago, before spreading to the Middle East, Southern Europe, and other areas. People called sugar sweet salt because it served the same purpose. Let's say you have lemons from Italy or strawberries from southern France, you can pack them in sugar to send to northern Europe. While Beth and I were talking about sugar in this era and the big picture beyond candy per se, the conversation turned toward a subject that touched every aspect of American life at the time. Anything in our society never would have happened without slavery. And for us to not acknowledge it, I guess where I'm going with this, for us to not acknowledge it is not the answer. Refined sugarcane the kind used in the fancy candies of the early 1800s, that sugarcane was available because enslaved people had grown and harvested it. In an article for the 1619 Project at the New York Times Magazine, Khalil Gibran Mohammed writes that in the days before the transatlantic slave trade, quote, refined sugar was a luxury product. The backbreaking toil and dangerous labor required in its manufacture an insuperable barrier to production in anything approaching bulk. It seems reasonable to imagine that it might have remained so if it weren't for the establishment of an enormous market in enslaved laborers who had no way to opt out of the treacherous work. Unquote. However, that's not the sort of story that was appearing in the newspapers of the 1800s. For most Americans outside the plantations, if there was refined sugar around, it was stripped of that story. It was just another commodity, one that often had happy associations. So this period is when sugar as preservative for fruit was leading into sugar plus fruit equals candy. It was a process that got streamlined with all the sugar harvested through the forced labor of enslaved people and later through ever-increasing industrialization. Which is to say, strawberry bonbons aren't just old-fashioned. They're some of the oldest examples of candy from the period when industrial candy-making and sugar plantations overlapped. They're an emblem of a different era of the food landscape as we know it, but one that still influences what we eat today. There was one article from the Edwardsville, Illinois Intelligencer in 1871 that felt like closure for me. It talked about how candy was this booming business and how Americans were spending $20 million per year on candy, which is hundreds of millions of dollars now. The article also said that, quote, The old-fashioned stick candy has of late given way in part to the French inventions of drops, 
crystals, nougats, caramels, etc., and the trade in these articles is continually increasing. So there it was, the smoking gun, or like molten candy, that I had been searching for. An announcement that fruit drops were new, taking over from the old-fashioned stick candy. Case closed! I had found the origins of strawberry bonbons. Late 1860s, early 1870s, right in there. This felt like a satisfactory answer to my original question about when these old-timey candies were new and cutting-edge and something else was old-fashioned. But there was something else I had kept coming across in my research. Another itch I had to scratch. After the break, Doug falls down another old-timey candy rabbit hole. You deserve a kitchen that works for you. Kohler's sinks come in varying depths and basins so that you get your perfect fit. Their workstation sinks provide accessories to support all of your washing, rinsing, and storage needs. All of Kohler's sinks and faucets are designed to make your kitchen look its best while still getting your cooking goals accomplished. And what a relief that is, especially during the holidays. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Holiday season is baking season. Apple pies, blueberry cobblers, cookies. Oh man, I'm salivating just thinking about them. But why end the festivities at dessert? OXO can help you bring that holiday baking spirit into breakfast with their holiday baking tools. Thinking about making those cranberry pecan muffins from Cook's Illustrated? You can count on OXO's nonstick muffin pan to do the job. Our reviews team ranked it as the top muffin tin for easy release when the muffins are done. Proof listeners get 15% off on their holiday must-haves when you use the code ATK15 at OXO.com. That's ATK15 at OXO.com. And now, back to our old-timey candy story. As I was searching and going down all these rabbit holes... I kept seeing something called candy pulls. There were dozens of mentions, maybe hundreds, starting in the mid-1800s and going for another, I don't know, 60 years or so. And while this had originally been annoying because all I cared about was strawberry bonbons, now I was intrigued. Strawberry bonbons had originally tapped into my sense of nostalgia, But the research journey kept coming back to the ways that candy connects people and fosters a sense of togetherness. Candy pulls offered an even stronger sense of connection and an even more vivid escape from my personal circumstances. They gave me a sense of place I felt like I could inhabit with characters and personal drama, a rich tableau of history that I could walk around in my mind. Candy pulls were social events, They had the same spirit of, say, a modern community grill-out. But instead of grilling hot dogs and cheeseburgers, this was all about making candy that was essentially a form of taffy that required lots of pulling. People would gather for an afternoon or an evening, hang out, pull candy, eat candy, just have fun together, enjoying a respite from everyday life. 
One of the first accounts of a candy pull that I came across was by a writer named Sasha Burns. She writes in the Mineral Point, Wisconsin Weekly Tribune in 1871. He who has never been initiated in the mysterious process of making molasses candy can never fully imagine the delight and pleasure arising therefrom or fully appreciate its sweetness. And he who is an acknowledged mature in the art never refuses the opportunity to indulge in it. I mean, initiated in the mysterious process of making molasses candy? That already sounds intriguing, right? It's like Martha Stewart meets Masonic ritual. This article from 1871 is long. It goes on for more than an entire column's worth of tiny typeface. Seisha Burns lives in the city. She says she knew about candy pulls, but hadn't attended one until she got an invitation from a friend who lived in the country. She starts off by describing her arrival. She zips off from the city on a winter's evening, riding a horse-drawn sleigh with jingle bells, laughing all the way. Literally, this is how she describes it. Eventually, she arrives at this beautiful farmhouse with a well-scrubbed kitchen. There are bunches of dried herbs hanging from the beams, and the woman of the house is tending to a large kettle of boiling molasses. The woman mixes in a bit of vinegar and soda to make it white. And then, Seisha says, She poured the amber mass into the platters and plates, which, previously greased, awaited its reception. After which, each one of us took a dish and ran outdoors to set it in the snow to cool. But we found that it did not cool so quickly as we had imagined, as our burnt fingers testified. But when it became cool enough to work well, we each took a soft, warm lump and commenced the interesting operation of pulling candy. They find it hard work at first, mostly because the candy is just too sticky. When they try to get it off their hands, it just won't budge. Eventually, they add some butter or flour to their hands, and at this point, Seisha says, it has some enjoyable degree of pullability. Finally, they get into their rhythm, pulling in teams until the candy is just thin enough and cool enough to get a little brittle while still being chewy. This is when it's ready to cut and then eat. Seisha's delight after all this is infectious. Nothing so sweet as the candy our own hands have pulled. Verily, how sweet did it taste. That all sounds... lovely. Verily. It appears that candy pulls were mostly in rural areas and largely an upper-class thing, but they definitely weren't limited to a specific group or class. There were Confederate soldiers doing candy pulls during the Civil War. There were Black sharecroppers having candy pulls after the war. A woman named Mariah Hines, who had previously been enslaved on a plantation in Virginia, recalled that after she became free, she and her friends and family would sit in the yard outside their house and, quote, we could have candy pulls from cooked molasses and sing in the moonlight by the tune of an old banjo picker, unquote. I found references to candy pulls hosted by Mormon settlers in Utah in the late 1800s, There were also references to Jewish congregations in the South around the same time, and as an advertising gimmick for a cane syrup company in Atlanta. There were candy pulls at church socials around the USA, from Arizona to Kentucky to Oregon, towns and villages in seemingly every corner of the country, and just 
endless after-the-fact accounts of wild nights at private candy pulls in various people's houses. Historian Beth Kimberly, who has actually done candy pulls in real life, explained some of the specific appeal to me. For starters, you do get a lot of candy to share with everyone. There's not a lot of other foods that you can make this big batch and get like a great yield out of it, if you will, and have a lot of people very satisfied, like, oh, make me the peppermint one and I'll take the strawberry. But also the process of stretching it out, aerating the candies so that it has just the right amount of chew, that requires teamwork. Socialization is a necessity. While plenty of candy pulls were joyful, family-friendly affairs, many of the newspaper accounts I found painted a perhaps more salacious picture. One account from 1861 said participants should expect, quote, kissing to say the least. The same writer endorsed candy pulls as a perfect shock to propriety affair where everybody acts just as wild as they have a mind to be. Oftentimes, the kissing came later. The pulling was the time to flirt, and then the group would eat some candy and head over to another room for a game based on a song called King William. Essentially, they'd stand in a circle with one man in the middle, and then everyone else would spin and sing, ending with the lines... Go choose your east, go choose your west, choose the one that you love best. The man would choose one of the women in the circle who would join him in the middle. And I just want everyone to remember at this point that they've been pulling candy. Everyone's sticky and tired. And the group would serenade the couple, instructing the man, salute your bride with a sweet kiss. And then they'd kiss. This was part of the candy pull experience. It was a place to meet other young people and chat and make out. It had a bit of a nightclub feel, but instead of music, the main event was candy. At one candy pull in Macon, Georgia in 1884, a young couple hit it off so well that the man proposed and the woman accepted on the spot. A congregational clergyman who happened to be in attendance married them right then and there. I also found a little notice from the publisher of the Mississippi Telegraph in 1848 saying that he, quote, would respectfully inform the public, and the ladies especially, that he has gotten through with the press of business and is now ready to attend quiltings, candy pollings, and other parties on the shortest notice with neatness and dispatch. He's done with work and he's ready to party at the candy poll. Please send invitations post-haste. Just incredible vibes. Timeless drama. My absolute favorite thing that I found in all of my many browser tabs was an illustration from a newspaper in the late 1800s. It's a black and white drawing with this couple in the foreground. The man is wearing a dark coat with a high collar and long tails. The woman is in an elegant floral dress with a puffy skirt. Her hair is pinned up with a flower in it. They are not messing around fashion-wise. This couple has locked eyes, and they're both holding on to this thick strand of candy, pulling it apart. You can tell that there are kind of some sparks between the two. But in the background, there's even more drama. Another couple is watching, 
and the man seems to be gazing longingly at the first woman, the one in the floral dress. And in the very back, another couple is sitting on this beautifully ornate sofa. The man is scowling, and the woman is looking away from him. It's absolutely not fun and games for them. You could see this scene as the opening of, like, a new TV series coming to a streaming network, like Love and Taffy in the Gilded Age. The real-life drama could get incredibly tense. Emotions spilled all the way over. I even found a few different stories about murders at candy pulls. In 1902, there was a case in Kentucky that made headlines around the USA when two boys were fighting over a girl and multiple people drew guns. One person was killed and another eight were shot, including one who ended up losing an arm from his injuries. Obviously, that's not really a story about candy, but it was the catalyst for the gathering. It was a thrill to live those lives vicariously. Not that I wanted to witness murder or be part of some candy-centered love triangle, but in that moment of modern isolation, when I craved the connection of even an awkward night out at some too-crowded concert or a party where I didn't know anyone and did an instantly regretted shot of, like, peppermint schnapps, it was impossible not to be drawn in by the emotional depth of these stories. I could feel the tug of that robust sense of community and the candy that served as one of its recurring points of collective joy. Food is famously linked to nostalgia for childhood. Marcel Proust knew it. The movie Ratatouille knew it. You know it, I'm sure, based on your own experiences. I can think of a dozen flavors that trigger specific memories for me. When I was looking at candy poles, I found a recollection from a man named Reverend J.B. McFerrin, writing in 1880. He recalled the maple syrup harvesting events of his own youth in the first half of the century. The sugar camps were great institutions in their day, and a stirring off was a grand occasion when many a gallant youth made love to his blue-eyed sweetheart or to the smiling lass whose raven locks floated carelessly on the winds of the wildwood. These stir-offs were far more romantic and enchanting than the artificial candy-pullings of more modern times. I'm sure that even in McFerrin's youth, someone was bemoaning the stir-offs as too modern, a loss of something essential. Every generation pines for the past in some way, an unbroken chain going back forever. Research shows that the tug of nostalgia is especially strong in times of crisis, and on an individual level, it has measurable positive benefits, not just for your mood, but your overall well-being. Even when we're aware of the imperfections of history, Nostalgia is a powerful drug, and sugary treats seem like an especially strong vector for it because they're intrinsically tied to celebratory occasions and childhood delights. If you're looking for a quick hit of that memory, go find your sucrose of choice. The reality of candy is a complicated thing, but in memory, it's really kind of simple. It signifies the past. It signifies sharing and it signifies happiness. There are plenty of places to get your retro candy fix if you're looking for it today. 
One of the best is a shop in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia called True Treats. They also have a website because even old school products deserve modern commerce. True Treats sells all kinds of sweets going back literally thousands of years, including products made using sugars mentioned in the Bible and fruit sugars used by Native Americans before any Europeans arrived. They also have things like Turkish delight and hard candies from all over. The shop's owner, Susan Benjamin, wrote her own history of candy and frequently consults for TV shows when they need to figure out what candy matches a particular period or place. She told me that the value of this old-fashioned candy today is... That they signified certain things about our culture. In our store, in particular, people come in and the parents say, this is what grandma used to love, and tell the story. So there's that attachment to the past that's really important. Talking to Susan took me right back to the strawberry bonbons that started this whole journey and the memories they conjured. Most of the candies in Susan's shop wouldn't have the same effect on me, of course, but there was something magical about realizing that each of those sweets would be a time machine for someone. There's a cultural story embedded in each one, but also an intensely personal story. Retro candies like these have endured not just because they've been intentionally kept up by caretakers, but because they persist as something people love and as a tale to tell, passed down from one generation to the next. A few weeks ago, my friend Andrew texted to ask if I'd like to join him for a small concert at a dive bar in South Minneapolis. His neighbor's garage band was playing a gig. Andrew and I have known each other since college. His two kids are almost exactly the same ages as mine. We used to hang out fairly regularly, but then, well, life got busy and all that stuff. For a minute after I got his text, I was apprehensive. I just hadn't spent an evening hanging out with a friend in person for so long. My mind started thinking of all the reasons not to go because staying in had become my default. My wife could see me waffling and urged me to go. So I wrote back to Andrew, I'm in. The next night, I drove over to the bar, which is a little place called Driftwood. It has two vintage arcade games in the corner by the door, Christmas lights affixed to the ceiling, a print of Jimi Hendrix on one wall, and paintings by local artists for sale on the other wall. Just a classic local joint. Not an on-trend destination, but a come-as-you-are hangout. Andrew and I went over to the bar to order some beers before the music began. As we got close, I could see a large metal mixing bowl sitting on the bar top near the beer taps. The bowl was filled with little red things with green tops. I looked closer and my jaw dropped. I started laughing as Andrew looked on, giving me a quizzical look that bordered on concern. The things in the bowl were strawberry bonbons. I have a long story to tell you about these, I told Andrew. I handed him one of the candies and took one for myself. The band played a set of mostly pre-Beatles rock. Some Everly Brothers, some Merle Haggard. It was upbeat but agreeably mellow, with a fiddler adding a bit of country spirit to the arrangements. There were about 20 people or so in the audience. They swayed and nodded their heads and clapped along. 
One of the bar employees, a guy named Larry, who wore a Snoopy shirt and a wide smile, periodically wandered the room checking in on everyone. Andrew and I kept quietly chatting in the back, making up for almost three years of missing conversations, all the highs and lows of parenting and working and living in these weird times. His kids were doing well. His son had just started second grade, same as my older daughter. Andrew told me that he had even recently joined a band himself. When the band took a break, Andrew and I decided it was time to have our round of strawberry bonbons. I haven't tasted one of these in ages, so we're going to try it now here I'll join you. at the Driftwood. Offer some tasting notes. Yeah, tasting notes. Even even without unwrapping it, I'm getting some hints of strawberry. Oh my god, that's so artificial and so sweet. <laughs> it is really interesting because like we've gotten better at strawberry flavoring than this. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's true. not like it's not like these guys were like, okay, now we're moving on to version two. It's like, no, this is what this candy tastes like. We're we're not going to change the candy. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that until Andrew mentioned it, but he's right. Strawberry bonbons haven't been updated. They're one of the rare vintage things without a modern reboot. They taste the way they taste, and they continue to just appear out of nowhere. Not at a store, but in a bowl, offered to you by someone else as a sign of hospitality and kinship. They haven't changed, and that's their beauty. After the band finished its set and played an encore, Andrew and I prepared to leave. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I have a tab for you, right? Can we bring it over? Oh, yes, please. That'd be great. Sure. Larry, the guy in this Snoopy shirt, stopped by our table one last time, holding the giant bowl of candy. He jiggled it at us, insisting we have another piece. One more for the road. As with so many other occasions throughout history, the candy wasn't the main point at all, but it served as an essential burst of shared joy in the proceedings. It was a little wink, a way of saying, hey, let's relax and enjoy this moment together. Andrew and I talked about getting our families together again soon, and he invited me to his first gig with his own band a few weeks later. Then we waved goodbye and pocketed our strawberry bonbons. They were something to savor later, and this time, they wouldn't conjure far-off memories, but something much more recent, a long-overdue reconnection between friends, and a reminder of the small joys still available to us here and now. Thanks to Doug Mack for bringing us this story. You can read his newsletter at snackstack.net. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. 
Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Poynton, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik, and additional engineering by David Bowman, Brian Campbell of Signal Sound's composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Mar and Mac, Andrew Owen, and everyone who spoke to Doug for this story. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Sengoku, The Mango Board, and Breville. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.